Welcome to Hope for the Heart. Today I want to turn our attention to the subject of Easter. And of course, for the believer, the subject of Easter is not really Easter, it's the resurrection. So I want to talk today just a bit about that, but as I think about that, I want to read a passage of Scripture today found in John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. I want to read these so that uh, we can have a, a context upon which to base our, our thoughts and our study today. In John chapter 20, and by the way, that's the Gospel of John chapter 20, uh, verses 1 through 10. I want to read this to you. Uh, again, you can listen or follow along or turn in your Bibles with me or just listen and observe and take some notes if you care to do that. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, the Word of God reads, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb, while it was still dark, and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and came to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away our Lord, or they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb, and the two were running together. And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Simon Peter therefore also came following him, entered the tomb, and he beheld the linen, linen wrappings lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple, who had first come to the tomb, entered then also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. And so the disciples went away again to their own homes. We come, uh, I guess, to uh, what I think is a very interesting passage. I know there's a lot of different passages we could deal with on the subject of uh, the resurrection, but I want us to understand that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a feature of Christianity. Uh, I see it as the main event. It is the main event. Resurrection is the point of redemption. The whole purpose of God in creating and redeeming uh, His people is to raise them up to eternal glory so that they can worship Him forever. That, <clears throat> excuse me, that is the point of his redemption. Resurrection to eternal glory is not only glorified spirits, but glorified bodies. Our resurrection, you can say, would be, is, is secured by the power of God, the power of Christ demonstrated in his resurrection. But it's interesting there in this time of the year that so many people don't actually focus on the resurrection. Where I'm located in St. Louis, it's uh, predominantly uh, of another religion. I believe it's mostly Catholic. And uh, there is a lot of attention to Lent. I think, in fact, that uh, pre-Lent, uh, people are, are celebrating pre-Lent and it's about to end. But in fact, these two words come to mind when you think of the pre-Lent season. One is the term Mardi Gras and one is the term Carnival. I know that it depends on uh, where you are in our, our world today as to what you celebrate. But basically in our country, we celebrate Mardi Gras, and then in others it's Carnival. Uh, we're familiar with Mardi Gras. In parts of the world, they celebrate Carnival, and uh, that, that's basically a time of, uh, of sinning, of drunkenness, rioting, sexual misbehavior, getting ready to repent in view of Easter. In fact, Mardi Gras comes from two French words, 
Some of you may or may not know this. Uh, two French words, you know the French word Marty, uh, Marty or Marty means Tuesday, and Gras means fat. So Mardi Gras means Fat Tuesday. It's the last day before Lent. I think most people are aware of that, <clears throat> even if they're not Catholic. And you get you get uh, you better get fat now because you're going to go without it for a while. Carnival comes from words which uh, we should be familiar with, uh, and that's carne from the word uh, uh, where we know chili con carne. It means meat. And vow, from which we know in high school days, and we were uh, probably most of us were listening to a valedictorian give a farewell speech, and it means farewell. Carnival means farewell to meat, and Mardi Gras means Fat Tuesday. They both are basically saying the same thing. You have a big party before you get into the spiritual, just to make sure you don't miss anything, and then you have hope. And the hope in, in the end will all turn out in the end, and you can repent of all this stuff and abstain from it. Maybe someday uh, we'll have an understanding of, of all that is what they teach. By the way, as a footnote, Lent is not from the Bible. I don't know if many of, uh, of the people who happen to listen to this broadcast will understand, but Lent is not biblical. And why so many people focus on that tells me uh, well, it brings confusion just to my mind. Why do people not even really research the way they celebrate or study or read or observe certain things? Lent's not from the Bible. There's no such thing in the Bible. It comes, Lent comes from mystery religions of the cults of Babylon and was connected while supposedly killing a Baal with a wild boar. And for 40 days and 40 nights, the priests and, and the followers of Baal mourned his death until supposedly he rose from the dead on the 40th day, and that is where Lent comes from. It has nothing to do with Christianity outside of the Scriptures, and there's nothing in the Scriptures that we can even say relates to this. The world then confuses Lent uh, with issues further by throwing into the already uh, messed up situation with eggs, rabbits, candy, rites of spring, new clothes, hopes of the mix will solve their destiny. For most people, Easter is basically all of these things. It's everything from Easter eggs to eggs to uh, bunnies to new life, all these kinds of things, shopping for new clothes. I don't, of course, I don't think during COVID we are doing much of that anymore. But Easter is, a, is basically for the world as an event. It's a break in the sin, break for the Christian every day. Uh, but for the Christian, I think every day, it's not a break from sin. It is a resurrection day. It is a celebration day because we walk and we talk with the Lord Jesus every day because he is living through us every single day. We don't celebrate the event of Easter. You know, of course, I know if I say that without real explanation, I would be condemned but we do not remember a dead Savior. We are not attracted by uh, painfully distorted crucifixes. Uh, we worship, we love, we live every day in the presence of a risen, living Lord Jesus Christ. So every day is like an Easter in the sense, I mean, every day is not Easter. I heard one preacher say that, every day is an Easter. But every day is a celebration. And spe specifically, every Sunday is a celebration in fact, the very worship of Sunday 
being our day of worship, is in itself a celebration of the resurrection day. The world's attempt to bring Christ in on so many things, uh, so many ways, by ignoring Christ and bringing in all the other stuff, is just simply an opportunity for us when the world's attention is brought at least to the the peripheral of Christ. We want to take every opportunity to speak about our Lord's resurrection and, and that it will always be, I think, the believer's message, especially during the time of Easter. And so, that's what I want to do today as we turn our attention to this text of John chapter 20. We see that the resurrection really is the point of everything. The resurrection is not only a demonstration of power, but it's a validation of his offering because God was satisfied with the sacrifice of Christ offered for the sins of his people. God raised him from the dead, validating his work on the cross. Uh, We even see that in the phrase, it is finished. God said, I am satisfied, raised him, ascended him to eternal glory, sat down at the right hand of God to intercede for his people, according to the book of Hebrews. And, uh, And then that is one of the things that we are looking at. But the resurrection then is the greatest event in history. Uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse says it's the greatest event in history, in redemptive history, or in history, period. It is the most significant expression of the power of God on the behalf of believers. It is, according to John MacArthur, it is the cornerstone of the gospel promise. Uh, Stephen Lawson says, We are saved to be raised from the dead, and into heaven we go forever into that resurrected form. The purpose of salvation, again, is a resurrected people. And this is one of the things that uh, should be on the mind of every believer during this season is that we do focus on the subject of the resurrection. It is the truth of the resurrection which you receive, which you believe, which you stand according to what 1 Corinthians 15 says. It is the very essence of the gospel and to signify that on the ongoing, on, on really have the importance of that, Sunday has become the very first day of the week for it is the first day of the week it is the day of worship it is the day of celebrating the resurrection because the resurrection happened on a sunday that's why the church meets to worship on sunday we do not meet on friday the day of the crucifixion we meet on sunday the day of the resurrection the church has been doing that since it begun, since the apostles on the resurrection day, the first day of the week, met with Jesus that very Sunday evening. The church has always met on the first day of the week to celebrate the resurrection. Now, it's interesting when you think about the resurrection, you think about really what is Easter and what does all of this prove. And there were so many ways I could go with this, so I figured I would just give a very simple little look at, at John chapter 20. But in thinking about the resurrection, we talk about it, we sing about it, we celebrate it. There are several interesting things to note about it that you probably already know. One, no one saw. No one saw the resurrection. It's not an event you need to see. All you need to see is the person who was dead. There were many witnesses, and we, in fact, are witnesses because Christ lives in us. But there is really no one who saw the resurrection. 
No Bible writer tries to explain the resurrection, the physiology of it or the pathology of it, because there is no rational explanation. It's not really a problem that the Bible doesn't explain the resurrection because it's really a creative event. It's a supernatural miracle like all the other miracles. We can't simply explain them. You can't explain creation because it's a creative miracle. You can't study it from the standpoint of being rational, observable, or pragmatic, or scientific. You just can't do that. We don't know how the miracles of Jesus occurred. There's no way to diagnose them, to understand them humanly. In fact, just like my pastor many years ago said, a miracle is simply God doing with his creation what he wants to do. So we don't know how it all actually happened, but we do know that the resurrection actually did happen. We don't know exactly what took place, but remember, we do know that it actually happened. And this John chapter 20 is actually speaking to that as far as what we do know, as far as what the facts are concerning the resurrection. And so when we look at this, I want you to just in general remember that this subject or this passage of Scripture in John 20 is talking about several lines of evidence given in Scripture. One is the empty tomb. That's a pretty good indication. There's the angelic testimony uh, directly from heaven. There's eyewitnesses. And all of that is going to be laid out in this 20th chapter. Of course, we may not get to all of that, but it's, it's great for us to know where to go to be able to read the accounts. All of that is in John 20. As we come to this account, we we go through this, we'll kind of blend in a little from Matthew, a little from Mark, a little bit from Luke, just to help us get a better grip on it, because all the gospel writers did write on the resurrection. Now, what we're seeing is that John wrote this gospel, the story of Christ. John wants us to see the glory of Christ even in his death. And so he shows us the glory of Jesus because he shows us that Jesus literally was in charge of his own dying. And then he was in charge of his own burial. And now he's in charge of his own resurrection. And this is to demonstrate for us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that we might believe that we, by believing, have eternal life in his name. What a tremendous thing to be able to say. The Old Testament promised the Messiah would rise. In Psalm 16, we see he will not allow his Holy One to see corruption, but show him the path of life. He will not corrupt in the grave, yet will through the grave go through the grave into life. Isaiah 53, he will be cut off, but will be made alive. We will see his offspring. Uh, he said several times, destroy this body in three days, I will rise it, raise it up. And so we have all of this that we're looking at. And so I want you to take a look at the text. And I'm going to try to work through this in just almost like a story fashion. Uh, As you know, that uh, you you may not know, but you should know probably by listening to uh, exposition uh, by many other people, that when you do an exposition of scriptures, it's sometimes very difficult to do a narrative. And this is a narrative. Uh, This is not a deep theological section. It's a narrative, and so it's uh, rather interesting. So I'll just kind of work my way through it. But we see it's a fascinating scene here, and it's recorded for us. And I think what the writer of John, who's John the writes this, wants us to understand, is that Jesus rose from the dead. And there is proof of it. First of all, the empty tomb. 
And I want you to look more closely at this. It will be, uh, this is Sunday, verse 1. The Jews uh, numbered their days. They didn't name them like we do Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and so forth. They numbered them. Sabbath was Saturday, the seventh day, because it was commemorated the seventh day, which God rested from creation. And they always worshiped on the Sabbath day. So this is the first day after the Sabbath, which would make it Sunday. And so we see that is exactly what it says now, on the first day of the week, we know that the first day of the week is Sunday. Jesus said he would rise on the third day. He's been buried on Friday. He was in the grave a few hours on Friday before sundown. He was there all 24 hours of Saturday, and he would have been there about 12 hours on Sunday because the Jewish days were from sunset to sun, uh, sunset to sunset rather than from sunrise to sunrise. Friday ended at sunrise Jesus has already been in the grave on Friday all through Saturday and then sunset to sunset now about 12 hours on Sunday. So it's early. Mark says very early. John says while it was still dark. I love that. They're all talking about the same kind of time. They're all talking the same basic period. So to harmonize them, you'd have to go to each one. But the integrity of Scripture is maintained in the honesty of the statement that it was basically early. First day of the week, it was still dark, and the stone had already been taken away from the tomb. And so the sun is risen. Luke says it's early dawn. Uh, and so we're, just to know, it, this is not a contradiction. It's all the same time. Dawn happens fairly rapidly, but when she came, being the first one, it was on the dark side of dawn, meaning it's still dawn, but it's just not quite as light yet. Now, she didn't start out alone. According to Matthew 27, And uh, Mary and the mother of James and Jesus w- was with her. So she wasn't alone, but she got there first. She's in a hurry to get there. She gets there before the other Mary. Matthew tells us in 28.1, both Marys headed for the tomb, but now we know Mary Magdalene got there first. Now, there's uh, other women were coming along also. There were women at the foot of the cross. The same women were at the foot of the cross were there on Friday when uh, Joseph and Nicodemus were trying to take the body to bury it. It says in Luke 23, 55, that the women who had come with the Lord out of Galilee saw the tomb where the body was laid. So they were at the cross. They were at the burial. And, of course, they don't go anywhere and travel anywhere on the Sabbath. And so this is after the Sabbath, the first day. They couldn't do anything on the Sabbath. They've awakened in the morning on the first day, being Sunday morning. The first thing they think is to got to get back to the tomb. They actually have in mind, we'll go back and put some anointing on the body of Jesus. So that's the scene in verse 1. Mary Magdalene's first. She comes early to the tomb. It's still dark. And the stone has already been removed. Now, the first line of evidence of the resurrection, and we all know this, so it's good to kind of have this Uh, brought to the forefront again. The first line of evidence of the resurrection, the empty tomb. The stone wasn't rolled away, as many have heard. I know that even the first time I heard this, I thought, well, I've never thought about that. But the stone wasn't rolled away to let Jesus out. It was rolled away to let the witnesses in. A resurrected Jesus doesn't need the stone to be removed. He didn't need a door to be opened that night. He he shows up with the apostles and came right through the door. So he didn't need to have a stone removed. They did that for the witnesses to come. But she arrives. She sees the stone taken away from the tomb. She fears the worst. 
And it's interesting to know why would she respond like this in verse 2. She ran, she spun around and ran. She assumed that Jesus is still dead, but taken in by this, and that's exactly what she does. She runs to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom John loved, and, and this is John. They, whoever they is, they have taken our Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. <clears throat> now, doesn't it strike you that her shock here is clear evidence that they had not planned to steal the body of Christ? Many through the years have said that Mary and them were going early not to anoint, but to steal the body. Well, I think it's pretty obvious what's going on here. She's shocked. This is clear evidence. She hadn't planned to steal the body of Christ. She didn't even expect a resurrection. She's not a part of a plot to fake a resurrection. Peter and John run also. Peter and the other disciple go forth. Verse 3, and coming to the tomb, the two were running together. Now look at this. Mary Magdalene gets to the tomb just to fill in the blank, spins around when she sees the stones rolled away. Maybe she took a peek, realized the body was not there, but she runs and she goes back to Peter and John, who were coming also. <clears throat> now, in the meantime, the other women arrive, and when the other women arrive, the angels appear to them. She missed the angels. She's gone, but the other women are talking to the angels, so she has that wonderful experience later, but she's on her way to Peter, Peter and John, who turn around, they begin to run as well. Now, none of these people know what's happened on Saturday. They don't know that the Sanhedrin got a Roman guard to guard the tomb. They don't have any idea of all of this. They don't realize in, in, in Saturday that the Romans seal on the stone so that no one could come and fake a resurrection. They put a seal, a Roman seal, which meant that it would become a crime, a violent crime. If you broke that Roman seal, they put a significant amount of Roman soldiers there. They don't realize all of this. They also don't know that deep in the night of Saturday night, uh, God sent a local earthquake. But before he sent that earthquake, he put all these soldiers under some kind of, uh, I guess, a spell or sleep or divine anesthesia. They all went to sleep, and then came an earthquake. And with the earthquake, the stone was rolled away, according to Matthew 28, verses 1 through 4. The soldiers don't know what's happened. The soldiers fled the tomb. Why? Well, they checked. They probably looked in and said he's gone. They can't figure out why he went to sleep or why they went to sleep. They were professional soldiers. That was a violation of duty. And uh, severe uh, repercussions can happen because they did not, as it looked, do their job. They don't know that the earthquake, where it came from, they don't know how the stone was rolled, rolled away. They don't know why the body isn't there, but it's not. So there's no reason to stay. Man, the soldiers are gone. So when Mary Magdalene and Peter and John get there, the other women refer to them. They they're all get there. Peter and John never refer to them when they get there. They're gone. In other words, Peter and John did not refer to the Roman soldiers. They weren't coming scared of them because they didn't even know they were there. They've gone they're gone, startled awake in the deep Sunday darkness by the earthquake. They're now out of the way. They know they have failed in their duty, uh, and they go right back to the Sanhedrin. That's the soldiers, that, that is. They all have a collective testimony, and we see that later, a little later on. Meanwhile, at the tomb, Mary Magdalene has assumed that 
Maybe somebody has stolen the body of Jesus. She has no thought of a resurrection. She has no idea of the resurrection. She runs to Peter and John. They don't have any thought of the resurrection either. I think that they're all running together. Uh, John wants us to know, very interestingly, that uh, in verse 3, Peter therefore went forth and the other disciple whom they were going to the tomb. Look at verse 4. And the two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster. This is John referring to himself. And it's a little interesting thing here. It just kind of wants us to know that... that, uh, that we see it twice here. The other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter came to the tomb. So we know that uh, John can run a little faster. That's just a little interesting tidbit. Uh, he's also a little bit more shy than Peter. He's stooping, looking in, sees the linen wrappings lying there, didn't go in. So Simon Peter also came. He followed him into the tomb, and uh, Peter was not shy. Both had entered the tomb, saw the linen wrappings lying there in the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had come first to the tomb, meaning John, second time they refers to his speed, then also entered and saw and believed. Now, I don't know just exactly what he believed, uh, but this has always been a, a thing that has amazed me. Because the next verse says, As of yet they didn't understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So he doesn't have a full understanding of the resurrection because they have not come to understand that. So he's maybe like the the man who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Or the point that I want you to notice is that they had no expectation that Jesus would rise. The women didn't. The leaders of the apostles didn't. So when it says this, it's possible that, that John is even saying, but perhaps he's believing that Mary, someone has taken the body, and they don't know where they've laid him. Perhaps that's the point. But as you think about these elements that we've just looked at, let me just identify them. Here's the evidence of the empty tomb. The, the guards are not there, because if the, if the tomb was, has still had Jesus in it, the guards would still be there. The absence of guards, in other words, is signifying the, something. The stone being removed signifies something. The body is actually gone, signifying something. The grave closed, neatly lying in place. Now, you have to go back to the burial and remember that they did not embalm. They wrapped bodies like mummies. In the case of Jesus, they had about a 100-pound weight of spices, so they would have wrapped a little and then... Uh, put some spices, wrap a little bit more, put some more spices, put some more layer upon layer upon labor, layer to uh, to just keep the uh, the stench from, from being there. If somebody stole the body, you would have to think that they wouldn't unwrap it. Why would you do that? So per, perchance, if they did want to steal the body, they would take everything with it. But here it says that the wrappings were lying in one place, folded over, and then the face or head wrapping was laying on the other side. They would have been linens all over the tomb had someone just yanked them all off and thrown them aside. But here it gives a a little bit of a different picture. The linen wrappings were lying there where the body had been, and the face wrappings where the head had been because he had just gone through them. Just gone through them. In other words, he just lifted through these clothes, these wrappings, and the linen wrappings are still laying there as if they're wrapped 
with a body still inside. There's no grave robbery, which is what some people believe. If the disciples did this, they would not have unwrapped the body. Who else would do it? Whoever else could have done it uh, wouldn't have unwrapped the body either. The disciples wouldn't do it because they didn't expect the resurrection. But the body was there on Friday, and everybody knew that. There is not a single bit of evidence denying the fact that the body was there on Friday, and it was a dead body. Everybody knew the body was there. Everybody knew that Jesus was dead. The Roman executioners knew that he was dead. That's why they didn't break his leg. They ran a spear through his side. No one could have come and stolen that body. But then who would? Certainly, the apostles would, uh, couldn't be uh, ascribed to having that kind of an intention. They almost all, with the exception of one, John, died as a martyr, and they died because they preached the crucified Christ and him risen. So they couldn't have done it. The Jewish leaders, I think, were probably more afraid that Jesus would rise than the disciples believed he would. They were afraid of Christ. Of course, they thought he got his power from uh, from hell itself, and so uh, I don't think that, that that holds much evidence. But the apostles expected the Messiah to reign. And so when, when you look at that, you see the Messiah expected to reign. They pick up, and you go and you find the story of the soldiers in Matthew 28. They assembled in verse 12, and they concoct a story that's uh, really a small, I mean, it's a, it's a stupid story. It says the disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Well, the problem with that is, if they were asleep, how did they know the disciples stole them? It's a, it's a stupid point. But anyway, I think they give us all of that in Matthew, just to show the, the stupidity of that. But you put it together, and the tomb is empty. The women testify to an empty tomb. The soldiers testify to an empty tomb. Peter and John testify to an empty tomb. The grave clothes testify to an empty tomb. The Sanhedrin itself testifies to an empty tomb and comes up with a ridiculous concoction to explain it. No one even or ever denied the empty tomb. No one. Not one person. The women were all shocked and terrified. They were shocked and terrified and you look at Mark 16, and, and you see that Mary Magdalene, the mother of Jesus, brought spices to anoint him early in the morning and was shocked. Entering the tomb, she saw a man sitting at the right wearing a white robe. Luke says that there were two there, and John says that there were two with the angels. And First, they near the woman, they're near the woman, then they're at the head of the foot, one at the head and one at the foot where the body was laying. And then you, you, can, you can devise or summarize from this the picture of the uh, where the, the grave clothes were, uh, and you can see that this is given to us a picture of Christ between the mercy seat mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant. And of course, I, I don't want to get into all that because our time is so limited. But remember now, the women have no idea what's happened. They run into these angels in the tomb, and they're amazed. In fact, the, the word is that they're, they're terrified, so they bow their faces to a, to the ground and. Probably the angels had to repeat themselves to get the point across. But the, the, the testimonies that are here, the empty tomb and the testimony of the angels, the angels said, don't be amazed. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who's been crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Here's the explanation, that, and that's the truth. He's not here. Why are you looking for him here? Go and tell his disciples uh, he's going ahead of you to Galilee, and you'll see him just as he had told you. They went out 
fled. There's a lot of running going on. And so they flee for they're in a panic and they're running to possess something they never, ever, ever expected. Then you get back to John. And if our closing thought, John 20, verse 9, the women finally begin to clear their heads on this. Peter and John begin to realize what's going on. And then it says in verse 8, they believe. Well, again, we're not sure what they believed or how complete their faith was. But as we, at this point, we do know that the Scripture says they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise again. That's all those verses that talks about Christ being raised from the dead. So they went away to their own homes. They just went home. And that's where it just kind of leaves us. Uh, but the first line of testimony for the resurrection is the empty tomb. The second line of testimony is the angel's declaration. And the third line of testimony are the eyewitnesses. And we're going to see that if, if we continue reading in John chapter 20. But then you get over into Luke 24, and I'll close with this little uh, tidbit. Uh, the Luke 24 is the road to uh, Emmaus where there's a number of uh, faithful followers of Jesus around. And so they're walking on the road uh, and it says they were with, he was, Jesus was walking with two of them. But it's the first day, the day that he rose and they don't recognize him because he's now in his glorified bodies. Their eyes were prevented from recognizing him and he says in verse 17 of Luke 24, why? <clears throat> what are the words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them named Clophus, the other one said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Remember, now Jesus, whenever he asks a question like that, is not looking for information. He's looking for confession. He's looking for uh, the, the truth coming out of their heart. What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a mighty prophet indeed in word and sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him over to the sentence of death, crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Instead, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. So sad. It's the third day. Now think about that. It's the third day, verse 22. Some of the women were amazed, were at the tomb, and didn't find his body. Verse 23, they came and said also, there's a vision of angels that said he was alive. Some of those who were with us at the tomb found it exactly as the women had said, but they didn't see him. And sad, and then Jesus says, oh, foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. In other words, you can't believe all that the prophets have spoken. Where you find everywhere in this unbelief, or what you find everywhere, in this story is unbelief. It's a small amount of faith, and it's confused. They didn't expect a resurrection. They didn't even fake a resurrection. They would never do that. They spend the rest of their their lives preaching a false resurrection and dying as a martyr for someone who did not rise. So the unbelief of the disciples is crucial evidence of the reality of the resurrection. Our Lord says, you're foolish. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory, bringing Moses and all the prophets? He explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. He reappeared that night with the rest of the disciples in verse 44. Of course, we're not going to get to that. But he did prove himself. And so my point is this. As, as, as fast as I went through this, this story of, of the resurrection in John chapter 20, the, the point is, the witnesses are there, the proof is there, 
There was a body on Friday. There was not one Saturday morning. If you are listening to this and have never really considered the resurrection, perhaps you should. Was there a literal resurrection? And it wasn't just a a, a spiritual thing. There was a bodily resurrection. There was actually a resurrection of the body of Christ. It was not in the tomb. It had been raised. And so that brings us to this finally. The eyewitnesses saw the risen Christ. It is their unbelief. That is the first evidence of the resurrection, followed by their true belief in the risen Christ when they saw him. You know, this is really demands our attention. You really owe it to yourself to think about this Easter, this celebration. What is it that all the talk is about? Is it really about an Easter bunny? Is it really about Lent? No, it's about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. I encourage you to think about this or to call upon the name of the Lord for salvation if you have not been saved. Father, we thank you again for the beauty and the consistency of the Word of God, particularly with regard to this most wonderful event, the resurrection. Thank you for opening it up to us through the Holy Spirit in the inspired text. I thank you how this story has brought uh, so much to so many people. I pray that it might be the center of focus upon all of our minds during this season of Easter. In your precious name and holy name, I pray. Amen.